Heavenly Father, we again are so thankful for the privileges we have because we're Christians in Christ. We're thankful that we are not trying to earn our present tense salvation, earn our future content by how we live now. We're thankful that we don't have to try and do everything on our own, pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps, as it were. But the grace of God is sufficient for us, Father, and the work of the Holy Spirit makes it possible that Christ that indwells us can be seen outwardly by the fruit of the Spirit. So we have so many wonderful things. Why would we want to steal that which is not ours in the first place? Bless in this study now as we continue on, and may it be useful to each and every one of us, we ask in our Savior's name. Amen. Now what we've been doing, by way of review, is we have been looking at what God's program is for Israel in a, in a broad overview. We haven't gone into every single detail that we could have gone into, and there are many things that are just tempting to go into that we just don't have the, really don't have the time or don't want to do it. But we want to give you an overview enough to to see how we have something so much better. We talk about that all the time, and it's true. What we have in Christ is so much better. You read Hebrews 11, and you can see that there were men and women that did great acts of faith in the Old Testament. But they did acts of faith. They didn't have a life of faith. They didn't have an attitude of faith. They just did here and there acts of faith. We have that, That right there should tell us we have something better. So what we're doing is we're going into this, and as we go into this study, we're pointing towards the future. That's why this whole section was titled, Looking to the Future, because we want to see what God has in mind for Israel. We saw in the Old Testament it was a kingdom. Now please remember, one of the important things that you can know about Israel, and you have to know this or you'll be confused, is that they had a two-sided relationship that we do not have. They had a relationship to God governmentally, The kingdom was supposed to be governed according to the Mosaic law. Now, I know there's those who want to try and do that in America today, but God didn't put America under the Mosaic law. So you had that relationship, and then you had the personal relationship. So you had a national and a personal relationship. And if we don't remember that, then we're going to have major problems because that is what marks the church as being distinct. We have a spiritual relationship to God. Our governmental relationship, we don't have one. Not to God. I know, gov- I know our government thinks they're God, but, but uh, we don't have that kind of relationship. Uh, Courtney, there are pages back there for today's Sunday School lesson there. You can pick them up. So, as we do so, we're moving toward the future. Now, we want to get to something that, that I have not heard taught, and I think needs to be taught. It is that in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, there are no less than about six laws that will be true in the millennium. Now, I always wanted to know, when I was a younger Christian, once I realized that there was a millennial kingdom, I always thought, I wonder what it's going to be like. I wonder what kind of laws and restrictions. Little did I know at the time that they're actually told, we're actually given some of them in Matthew 5. Now, as we get to Matthew 5, there's something we have to do, and that is we have to demythologize the Sermon on the Mount. Because what's happened to the Sermon on the Mount, it's like mythology. They have taken it and destroyed this sermon. The Sermon on the Mount has been ruined. It no longer says to most people in church what it should say. Now, the reason I say that is because, now, if you have your notes with you, it's on the bottom of page 8, and there's a couple points, but we'll be in page 9, so if you don't have page 8 with, with you, you can, you can listen up and uh, you get it anyway. So the traditional approach to the Sermon on the Mount, I took a quote from a website that's a Christian website. I don't know a whole lot about it, but it's, it's, uh, it's in there, and you can see the reference in your notes. There's a footnote on the reference where I got it from. 
And this is what that uh, website said. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount begins with a description of those who would be blessed by God. Now, I'll stop there for a second. Those who would be blessed by God. Do you have to do something to have God's blessing today? Well, in a sense, maybe you might think of it. You have to confess your sins, but you really... You're confessing your sins. Are you doing something God forgives you in your relationship? Do you have to do something to earn God's favor of grace today? I hope none of you think that because you don't have to. Every letter that Paul wrote, he said something along the lines of, blessed be the God and so forth, and grace and peace to you from God the Father. They're there. We have grace. We have peace. We have those things with the Father. Grace is there. We don't have to earn it. But this, this says, Jesus' sermon begins with a description of those who would be blessed by God. Right there, it tells me right off the bat, there's something wrong with this approach. But it continues. For instance, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled, Matthew 5, 6. The verses beginning with the word blessed, Matthew 5, 3 through 11, are commonly called beatitudes. Meaning, now this is where people really, this is where they go crazy. Continuing on with our quotation. Beatitudes meaning a state of supreme happiness. Now listen to this. In essence, Jesus is stating that these perspectives would be the mental states for all who would become his disciples. The remainder of this sermon gives specifics of conversion, how to be a Christian. Did you hear that? This is how to be a Christian. Now, right before we get into the section on problems at the bottom of the page, I want to start talking about just some of the problems and why, if we use it for today, the problems with that. But did you notice it says how to be a Christian? Now, that has to be one of two things. It has to be how I become a Christian initially. In other words, I have to work to earn my initial salvation. How to become, that's what he said in this quotation, how to be a Christian. How do you be a Christian? That, That leaves it open. Now, I don't think this, I don't think whoever wrote this article means that necessarily, but they might. They might be unbelievers for all we know. But how to be a Christian? In other words, Courtney, you and I can go out afterwards and we can sit there and we can work on some of these things in here. And we can say, now, have we got this right? And you say, yeah, we've got this right. We'll go through and we'll make a checklist up. Courtney and I say, yeah, okay, now we're a Christian because we're doing is that, is that what is that what the rest of the New Testament says? If it says that, then we're in the wrong business. And I'm going to go home. Maybe I'll go selling used cars. Used car salesmen have a good, well, actually, I could go to Congress. They have an even lower rep- reputation right now <laughs> than used car salesmen. But the point we're getting at here is that the traditional understanding ruins this passage. It makes it something it was never intended to be. Or it could mean this. Now, it could be saying, this is how I become a Christian. Or it could be saying something that is no better, that's equally worse, maybe more destructive. It could be saying, this is how you have to act as a Christian. This is what you do to be a Christian. This is how you are a Christian, how to be a Christian, how you go out and show the world you're Christian. You do this, you do this, you do this, you do this. Does anybody see a problem with that? I do. I see a big problem with that. I don't see anybody being led by the Spirit. I don't see anybody concentrating on the fruit of the Spirit. Well, we'll get into that. You see what I'm saying? The traditional interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount, it's not just a small problem. It's a major heresy. Now, I know in many quarters I'd probably be drawn and quartered and flogged and ridden out of town on the rail. As long as I get my choice of the rail, by the way, Troy, if I, I want an oak rail. So if you help me, make sure I get an oak rail so I get ridden out of town on an oak rail. Yeah, but in, in many places, you'd be written out of town and rail for saying this. But honestly, the way the Sermon on the Mount is traditionally presented, it's heresy. It's complete heresy. 
It's contrary to the Word of God. It ruins everything. It'll ruin your Christian life. It'll make your Christian life completely by works. It'll leave you... Well, you want to know what it's like. You can see Romans 7. Now, I didn't put it in your notes, but Romans 7 is a good place to go. We're not going to go there this morning, but if you look at Romans 7, you see what Paul went through when he tried to, by keeping the law on his own effort, tried to tough out being a Christian. What he found out is that he wanted to do the right things, but he couldn't do them. Now, I don't need any help at goofing things up. So if I walk into this, I'm just asking to be goofed up. We have enough trouble by doing what's right. Now, on page 8, if you have it, there are many problems with the traditional approach to the Sermon on the Mount. We're not going to cover every error, but we want to look at some of the most important problems that the traditional view on the Sermon on the Mount raises. Now, page 9, you do have that. All of you, I hope, have that. If not, we do have them in the back. So, the most obvious problem is that the traditional approach requires much allegorizing. Now, allegorizing, you know what that means. I hope you all know what that means. It all says, well, this doesn't really mean this. It means something else. It doesn't mean what it says literally. It's an allegory. Now, there are places where you find allegory in Scripture. You find, for example... But it's interpreted. You find that Satan in Revelation 12 drew one-third of the stars and threw them to the earth. Now, in that case, we know that it doesn't mean stars literally. It means angels. So there were angels. So there are places where that's done. But when something is an allegory in Scripture, Scripture will interpret it for you. If it doesn't interpret it, don't try to make it an allegory. Please, we get into more trouble... By, by trying to make the Word of God say something we want it to say and not letting it say what it says. We stay out of... It's, it's so much easier for us. Uh, Kevin, Kevin, we got some notes for today. Yeah. So we're on page, top of page 9. So the most obvious problem is that allegorizing is, is the best... You have to allegorize this like mad. Now, many allegorize Scripture because they believe that the church is spiritual Israel or has replaced Israel. Now, this all comes from a simple fact that someone approaches the Bible with a presupposition that the Bible is only about spiritual salvation, and that's the bulk of Christendom. Calvin and others, that was at the backbone of what they said, that the Bible was about spiritual salvation. So, therefore, anything that's not spiritual salvation, well, they have to say, well, that doesn't really mean that. It means this. When God told Abraham, he said, you're going to have seeds like your children are going to be like the stars of heaven. He looked up to the heaven and he saw a cross in the sky. Well, you might think that's ridiculous, but there are some. I have read that in a commentary. I wish I had saved that commentary. I probably threw it away for that. But he saw a cross in the sky and some actually believe that. Because they don't want people to take the Bible literally. Because there's just one people of God. There's just one plan of God. It's spiritual salvation. They have no place for a kingdom. So therefore, they can't let this be taken literally. Because if you take Matthew 5 literally, it's not talking about how a Christian acts. It's talking about something that's in the future for the people of Israel. So the first problem is that. So, And the non-literalists, people that don't take the Bible literally... Uh, they will contradict anything that doesn't make the church spiritual Israel. Along with a presupposition, because they assume it's only about spiritual salvation, and we have the New Testament, therefore they take the church and they call us spiritual Israel and they read us back into the Old Testament and we're spiritual Israel and they allegorize those things so they fit us. So you have one people of God, one set of... And it's just... You couldn't read the Bible that way because you would have to try and come up with what they come up with. And my imagination is good, but I'd imagine different things than they do. 
and Courtney's imagination is good, and Troy's imagination is good, and, and we'd all come up with something different. But now if we take this book literally, you know what happens? We can have a common faith, can't we? Amazing. Isn't that what it says in Ephesians 4, that there should be unity of faith? And there's not going to be unity of faith if you don't take the Bible literally. That's something our, our non-literalist friends don't realize. They don't realize that they're making it impossible for there to be unity of the faith. You can't, because if you have to imagine what it means, then it depends on your imagination. My imagination is quite flowery sometimes, and so is yours probably. So, now, Scripture is allegorized in point number three, because some non-literalists, some, I say some non-literalists, believe the Bible has no errors. Would you believe there are some who profess to be Christians who do say that there are errors in the Bible because the only thing that's important is salvation. The other stuff really doesn't affect us, so it doesn't matter. Well, you know, if we're going to say there's errors in the Bible, who determines where they are? Who determines what they are? You know, that's what I see as a problem. Joe, we've got uh, copies of the notes over there today. And so if you're left with that, if you're left with thinking that you have to determine what is true and what is not true in Scripture, boy, I'll tell you what. The Bible becomes your whipping post. You become the judge of Scripture. I remember it says in Hebrews 4.12 that the Bible is the critic of the thoughts and intents of my heart. It's my critic. I am not its critic. And anybody wants to sit there and tell you, well, that's an error. I mean to tell you, they are wrong. Now, the problem with the Sermon on the Mount... Now, we know the Pauline epistles, and there's some wonderful doctrine that this church teaches and stands for. And I support it 199% or more. But you will not find those in the Sermon on the Mount. The one thing that is the most flagrant is, if you read through Matthew 5-7, through please read through it and tell me how many times you see the word C-H-U-R-C-H, church. Do you know how many times you see it? You don't see it even once. And there's other things. There's no mention of the rapture. The church is not mentioned at all. But the law of Moses is in there. Are we under the law of Moses? Boy, I hope you don't think so. I don't want anything to do with the law of Moses. That was a pretty heavy, ponderous, negative thing. It wasn't good at all. Not for the believer. Then you have no filling and no fruit of the Holy Spirit mentioned at all. And I put the passages here. I hope you know these passages. But Ephesians 5.18, Ephesians, Galatians 5.22 and 23, you will not find the fruit of the Spirit mentioned at all. There is no leading of the Spirit. There is no fruit of the Spirit. Now I put point number five. Without these doctrines, it is impossible to maintain spirituality consistently and to grow spiritually. You cannot grow spiritually if you don't live by grace. If you want to try and live by the law, read Romans 7 again. Make a note of it. Write in your notes here. Read Romans 7. Right by that point number 5. I should have put that in there. But if you read Romans 7, about beginning around verse 12, I think it is, you will see. Let's go there. Let's go to Romans chapter 7 for a moment. This is, what should, uh, I, this is exactly what you would have as a believer if you wanted to live and take the Sermon on the Mount and make it for today and throw everything to the wind. This is what you're going to wind up with. I don't know about you, but I don't want to do this. I don't want, Paul did this so I don't have to. Beginning, let's beginning at verse 8 of Romans 7. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought on me all manner of concupiscence, or, if you please, it's strong desire. I believe that's the word in there, concupiscence. It's you know, lust, I believe. 
and says, for without the law, sin was dead. Now, without the law, sin is dead. It's not talking about some inanimate object when anyone calls sin that goes, <laughs> I'll sneak up on you. No, it's talking about something that is inside of you. That in Romans 6, he's talking about the sin nature. Yeah, Snidely Whiplash is who I was referring to, Courtney. Did you ever see him in cartoons? The Snidely Whiplash, for those who were not unfortunate enough to be raised in our generation, was this guy that ran around with this black outfit. And he had this black stovepipe hat and he had this curly Q mustache. And he'd walk around and go, <laughs> So he, uh, he he was just one of those kind of people. He, he was a bad guy you had to love because he was a hopeless, pathetic loser. But he was a bad guy. So uh, so you look, so the sin nature is dead. So Romans uh, 7, verse 9, For I was alive without the law once, but the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. I was cut off spiritually. He says, For sin... Or it says in verse 10, and the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. Now, Paul's not talking about himself dying at this point because he writes this letter, he's still alive. But death, remember what death is, separation. Paul found out that when the law came along, it revived, he died, he was separated from God. Why? Well, there's something called carnality. When I'm a carnal Christian, I'm separated from God. In a true sense of the word, I'm separated because God is no longer smiling on me. He has to work in me to get me to straighten up and confess my sin and get back to where I should be. So I was. So let's go on reading. Verse 11, Romans 7. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it slew me. You see, now he's saying this is the commandment, the law killed him. Now you know it, it's not. This is where you take, the, this is where you understand he's not talking about physical death. We're not allegorizing. It's just obvious it's got to be something else. In his spiritual life, he was cut off. He was rendered inoperative. It was put out of the way. He says, wherefore, verse 12, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Was that then which was made good unto me? And was that which is good made unto me death? God forbid, but sin, that it might appear sin. Now, this is, we're talking about the sin nature, Romans 6, that sin nature. But the sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by taking the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. Well, here's another, here's a real good thing. If you want to live by the law and go back and start using the sum on the mount, it says you're going to, oh, it says that the commandment's going to help your sin nature become exceedingly sinful. Hey, that's a blessing, isn't it? Isn't that what you want is for your sin nature to get stronger? Well, that's what you do if you take the sermon on the mount, folks. That's, what it, that's why there's so much... That's why you don't see maturity amongst people that are outside, that don't know, outside this, this type of teaching, outside there, that they don't know these things. They're not going to have a chance at maturity. Then he goes on and says, verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Why is he carnal? Because the commandment made him sin and he couldn't come back. Let's continue on reading. you find he couldn't. Look what he says in verse 15. For that which I do not, I do, I allow not. That which I would do, that I do not. But that which I hate, I do. If I then do that which I would not, I consent unto the law, it is good. Now therefore it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. Now it says sin that dwells in me. It's not talking about some weird creature that's crawling around or some COVID virus thing in there. It's talking about a nature. Romans 6, the sin nature all the way through the sixth chapter, you find the word, the sin. It's not usually translated that way, but in Romans 6, when you see sin, most of the time, almost every use of it is the sin. It's talking about a nature, and that's what he's talking about here. 
He said, I have that problem. Sin dwells in me. He says, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. There it is, folks. You want to live by law? I'm not saying you, but I'm just saying that as a generalization. Those who want to live by law, what are they going to find out? They're going to find out that they will have a desire to do good, but they'll never be able to do it. Oh, once in a while you can. I mean, sure, work of the flesh, temper. When I was untaught, yeah, I learned how to count to ten. But, you know, after a while, I, I counted pretty fast. One of the boom. You know, anybody experienced that, that rapid count when you're trying to count to ten to control your temper? Well, that's the way the flesh would do it. I learned to count so fast. Make your head spin. Faster than a computer. So, so when you look at this, I would say we could continue reading and look at some of these things. But you see, your nature does not have the ability. And now, if you're going to take the Sermon on the Mount and say, do these things, this is how you become, this is how you be a Christian. If that's the way you're going to take, that's the tradition. For those who came in late, we read a quote and part of that quote is taken out of a Christian source, and it says, in essence, Jesus is stating that these perspectives, the Beatitudes, become the mental states for all who would become his disciples. The remainder of the sermon gives specifics of conversion, how to be a Christian, how you live as a Christian. Is that what the Sermon on the Mount does? That's what we're talking about. How could it, when there's no fruit of the Spirit, no filling of the Spirit, there's no mention of the rapture, there's no mention of the word church, and this is for the church? No, I'm not tearing the Sermon on the Mount apart. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. It's one of the most beautiful sermons ever delivered. But it's not for me. I believe it. I think it's wonderful. It's beautiful. But it's not mine. It's not mine. Why would I want it? Why would you want it? Now, continuing on. A little interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount will show that it was recorded for the benefit of the church. Now, the Gospels... The Gospels, we may have mentioned this before, but the Gospels were written not to tell us what to do, but to tell us because the majority of the church by the end of the first century was Gentile. They had no Jewish roots at all. And those believers might well wonder, well, wait a minute, wasn't God dealing with Israel? Well, how did we get to the, this? How did we get here? The Gospels form a bridge. They tell you what the ministry of Christ was about so that we understand, not so that we do the same thing, we just, it's just for our information. It's good to know why we're doing what we do because if, if, if you don't know the reason that you're a Christian, you know, you've got a problem. And if you don't know why we're in the dispensation of grace, you need to read the Old Testament and find out because this is how you appreciate what we have. When we go through this, you'll come away thinking, I think Don's got a point. I think we have it better. Because when you see the six laws, when we get to them, the six laws that are in, in the fifth chapter, they're going to be in the force in the millennium. And you and I would not want to live under those today. I wouldn't want to live under them. When you see what they are, you're not going to want them. So, why do we say this is for the, this is for the church, for us to know? Because if we didn't have this, you and I would be saying, well, I wonder what the ministry of Christ was about. How did we get from, how did we get from he, was, he was supposed to come to be a king, but all of a sudden he's a savior. What's the connection here? I don't see it. Matthew puts it together for you. Because you can see the rejection of the king and the kingdom allow God to do what he intended to do, make him also a savior. And that was genius. But was this for the disciples or for the Jews? Well, let's see. Matthew chapter 5, we'll start right there. Let Let the Bible speak for itself. All I have to do is take it literally. I don't have to interpret it. I don't have to make up any fancy stories. 
if I did, I'd get together with my son-in-law, Troy, back there, and he and I come up with some of the goofy things, and my daughter, Andrew, would help me, and we could come up with all kinds of fanciful things. But you know what? I'd rather take the book literally. I'd rather let God be the authority. How about that? Does that sound pretty good? We take the Bible literally. We're making God the authority. So we read, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. This is Jesus. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. Now notice, his disciples came unto him. And then it says in verse 2, And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying. No worries. He taught them. Who's them? Let's do a little context. His disciples come unto him, and he taught who? Them. Who's them? His disciples. Easy to see, isn't it? In other words, he's not teaching all the people, so there's your first problem. It's not like he's telling all these people out there who are all part of the spiritual Israel, the church. He's not telling them how to be Christians. He's really not even talking to them. And in a sense, you could almost say that they're eavesdropping. They're, over, they're overhearing. Most of this, they're overhearing. Now, there's going to be some of it that will affect them, but the, the vast majority of everything it said is directed toward his disciples. And we're going to see in a minute why he directed toward Why did his disciples need to hear this? We'll get to that in a moment. But you'll notice Christ is speaking in public, yes. And the people that are present are going to hear him, but he's not addressing them. And now verse 11 and 12 the simplest, easy way. If you want to show somebody that Christ was speaking only to his 12 and not to the others, the simplest way to be would show them verse 1 and 2 and ask them who them refers to, or else go down and look at verse 11 and 12. And this is more dramatic. So I'd say, use this. You want to show somebody? This is simple. You can show them in just a verse or two. And anytime, anytime you can show somebody something, try to do it in a verse or two. Because if you give them a big, long explanation, you're going to lose them. But you give them a verse or two to stare at and tell them, say, now, what does this mean? They're kind of, it's kind of hard to get out of what it means if you take the Bible literally. It's really hard to get out of this. Look what it says in verse 11. Blessed are ye. Now, who's the ye? Who do you suppose it is? Well, it's he taught them back in verse 2. So when he says ye, he's probably talking to the them, which are his disciples. He says, blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Now listen to this, rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they, what? The prophets which were before you. Now were all the people of Israel prophets? Never. So we can see, bottom of page 9, Jesus is speaking to prophets. He's speaking to prophets. Those are his disciples. Now, how could all the people be prophets? You notice I put it in your notes. The people were not prophets. In fact, most of them were unbelievers. Remember, at the crucifixion of Christ, you can see it in John 19, the people get stirred up and all the people say together, crucify him, crucify him. How in the world could a prophet do something like that? You see, it doesn't make any sense. It has to be the disciples. It is for them. And the reason... The twelve are going to be prophets, top of page 10 on our notes. They're going to predict that the king was coming and that he's going to give the laws for the kingdom. And Jesus is going to give some of the laws. Now I've spilled the beans so you can look at it ahead. From, from Matthew five seventeen through 48, you will find no fewer than about six specific laws that are going to be in, in a force in the millennium. And please do not do what people do. They allegorize these and say, well, it does. Let's look ahead. Let's just look at one. You know this one. They're going to not take it literally. Well, let's see what it says here. 
Let's see. Verse 29, Matthew 5. If your right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. Oh, anybody here going to volunteer to do that? If you, if you offend you, if you look at something you shouldn't, you find the, and find your computer for somehow, somehow you just wander into a porn site, you're going to pluck out your eye because of it? You know, it's funny, I know a guy one time, he typed in White House, at this, we were in this evening school, he typed in White House and a porn site came up. And because of that, he got kicked off the computer for a month. And he said, but I only put in the White House. Well, I don't know what it was, what the porn site was, so I, I didn't try. I, I, did, I did not want to find out if that was the case. <laughs> maybe, that, maybe that was, if that was during the Clinton years, maybe that would be true. It would have been a pornographic site place. So, but are you going to do that? And, it said, and then you go on and it says, verse 30, if your right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. Now notice what it says, for it's profitable for you that one of your members should perish and that your whole body should not be cast into Gehenna. If this is telling me how to be a Christian, it's telling me if I sin, I can go to Gehenna. Do you believe that? Do you believe if you as a Christian can sin, that God will send you to hell? You've got a problem with the rest of the New Testament. You have major contradictions, major contradictions. Philippians says, he that began a good work and you will perform it to the day of Jesus Christ. If he began it, he's going to perform it. How's he going to throw you to hell? For one sin? If you don't pluck out your eye, cut off your hand? I'll tell you, folks, this is not for you. It is not for me. It is for his disciples. Now, only the 12, top of page 10, point C, only the 12 are going to carry this message to the people. If Matthew 5 was given to all the Jews... And they all became prophets that all need to go. But if everyone went in Israel, who would there be to teach? Anybody ever think about that? I wonder if these people that believe that it should be allegorized to everybody. If all the church goes, if we all go to the mission field, who's going to send us? Who's going to support us when we're there? Funny, nobody ever thinks about that, do they? You know, Joe, it's those little simple facts of common sense that you and I can recognize. These people don't see it. Why? Because they're blinded by their assumption that the church is Israel and that God only has one plan, it's for spiritual salvation. And that's why so much of the Christian material you read is, is junk. It's junk because if you go back and look through it, you find assumptions made. They'll take the Old Testament and apply it to you. Why? Because they assume spiritual Israel. So if it was back there for them, if it's good enough for Moses, it's good enough for me. No, I don't want what Moses had to do. I don't want what he had. I don't want how he lived. So, so if he all were going to go, who would teach? Who would be there to teach? If all the people on the heard the sermon Mount all got up and went, well, who would there be to teach if everybody went? There wouldn't be anybody. And that, that, that in, its, in its own right, I think that should really make it clear. That should make it clear that Jesus was only talking to the twelve. He was telling them to go. And by the way, that's why he says, verse thirteen. You are the salt of the earth. Not everybody, not all the people. The rest of them are unsaved. They were the salt. Why? Because they were going to be his forerunners. They were going to carry his message. They were going to say he's coming. They were going to be the salt, the preservative. Not all the people. How in the world could the people be preservers when they were, when they were the ones who were going to reject Christ and already hated him? You realize that Christ was hated very early in his ministry. They hated him. You go to John 5, which is fairly early, and you find out that Jesus healed somebody on the, on the Sabbath, and they didn't like it, so they wanted to kill him. The, the religious leaders decided quite early that he wasn't, he wasn't part of their swamp. So they wanted to get rid of him. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? 
Without going into politics, it does kind of remind me of something I know and don't particularly like to think about. Well, so, the 12, you see, point, point number B is the 12 apostles are going to have an apart in Christ's earthly ministries as forerunners. Now, to make it, to break it simple, what this section, the Sermon on the Mount was for, was it was to tell them what kind of character, how they should act as his representatives. That's who it was for. It was for them. It was to show them how they could act. And we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. We're, gonna, we're actually going to be able to finish our section here today. So the, 12, so, the instructions were given in Matthew 5, 1 through 16. And these are primarily telling them how they're going to go out and how they should be acting. Then it's going to, it's going to transition into th- some things related to the laws itself. But the first 16 verses are telling them how they should be, what kind of character they should have. Because in the 10th chapter, he's going to tell them the message they have. But do you want to send somebody out as a, as a spiritual representative and not tell them how to act? That's pretty shaky ground in my book. Pretty shaky ground. So, if you go over to Matthew chapter 10, and we'll spend the remainder of our time this morning in Matthew 10. I want you to see... There's a connection. Now, there's a little bit of time that passes from Matthew 5 through Matthew 10, but it's not as much as five chapters might lead you to believe. It was within a few weeks at the very most. Matthew 10, beginning at verse 1. And when he called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them, now notice, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal all manner of diseases and all manner of sickness. Now, you notice, he's giving them a ministry. If he gives them a ministry to do this, do you not think he would have also given them some instruction as to what they should be like, their character, how they should act? You're not going to find it in this chapter, so you're going to have to go back and find where he taught them and told them they were going to be prophets. Now he's going to make them prophets, because here they go. Listen to what follows. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the publican, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Labidius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. You know what? There's something interesting in here. Just in passing, we, we had uh, Wednesday night, we did two messages on this for the pastor. You know, Judas Iscariot went out, and guess what? It says he gave unto them the power to cast out unclean spirits and to heal disease. Does that include Judas Iscariot? He says he gave unto them. If he didn't give that power to Judas... Would Judas have not stuck out like a sore thumb all the way along? And when it came to the end, wouldn't they have been able to figure out, hey, Judas can't do any of the stuff we can do. He's the devil. He's the bad guy. No, he could do them all because they all did it. And you find when they all come back, they all said, we all did. We could do this. Interesting. A little, just interesting point along the way. Judas was one of them. They could not tell him apart. That's why he, he fit in. They didn't know the difference. He was their treasure of all things. So... Jesus sends them out, and he names, so you'll notice, he names specifically those who are going to go out, and you'll notice he's going to give them a commission. They're going to be his forerunners. He's giving them a commission. Please remember, he's giving them a commission, but we keep saying the same thing. He's telling them what to do, but he hasn't told them how to do it. You know why? Because he has, in the fifth chapter in the Sermon on the Mount, told them what they had, how they had to be, what they had to be like. This is how they had to act to do the things that they're going to need to do. And you're going to see why in just a moment. You'll notice he does something else that's interesting, too, in the 10th chapter. As he goes on, he says, uh, 
These twelve Jesus sent forth, verse 5, and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of Gentiles or into any city of the Samaritans, but go to the lost sheep of Israel. Whoa, 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 stop, 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 stop. Don't go to the Gentiles. Don't go to the Samaritans. Now, if this kingdom of God, or this kingdom of the heavens message was about spiritual salvation, why would, he, why would Jesus say, don't deal with Gentiles, don't deal with Samaritans? If it's about salvation, aren't we supposed to go and preach the gospel? Well, why would Jesus limit it? It's because the message was not about spiritual salvation. It was about the king. These are the forerunners of the king. He's going to tell them what kind of rules they're going to have in the kingdom. He's going to come. And they've come in advance to tell, them he's, to tell the people he's coming. Because you can see that down. Skipping ahead, I'm skipping ahead of my notes, but you'll notice down in verse 23... Let's see, wait a minute. Verse 20, yeah, verse 23. But when they persecute you, flee, to another, flee into another city. For verily I say unto you, you shall not have gone over all the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. You're going over the cities of Israel, and then the Son of Man is going to come. So they're going first to preach, to announce he's coming, and then he's going to show up himself. So in other words, they're forerunners. That's why we said they're prophets. These are the ones that are forerunners. They're doing these signs. Why are they doing these signs? Are they healing people because, they're, because Christ wanted everybody healed? Interesting, interesting thought there. If Christ wanted everybody healed, take time later today and go back and look at John chapter 5, the first part of the chapter. There was a man by the pool of Bethsaida, and it said there were other men there too, other people there. If everybody was supposed to get healed, why did he pick one man? Why did he pick just one man? I think I can tell you why. Because that man could not get in the pool, and he'd been there for a long time, and he could not heal himself, and he knew it. So he picked the one man who was helpless to make a point. Who is this that could take a helpless man and heal him? That's why. No, Jesus didn't heal everybody. He, wasn't, he didn't feed everybody. He fed 5,000, he fed 4,000. Great, great... Uh, you know, great handout program for socialism, but he didn't do it but twice it's recorded. No, he's, he's, that's not the reason for it. So he gives these individuals power to do these things, and he sets the limits in the ministry. He says, this is where you go. You don't go to these people. Why? Because they're carrying a message about the kingdom of the heavens, the millennial kingdom. The king is coming. They're going out to announce it. And you can see some of the things that are involved in this. Uh, he enabled the 12 to perform the miracles to validate their message. That's in verse 8. You see that. He says... Heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out devils, freely you receive, freely give. They have, and these, these signs, these are to produce or to prove evidence that they were telling the truth. Because the Jews, we know from, from 1 Corinthians, it tells us the Jews always seek a sign. They always want to see evidence. The Greeks want wisdom, has to be smart, has to make sense to the Western European mind. So, they, had, they could validate. And then, interestingly enough, in verses 9 through 13, I think you can say safely that they were supposed to be supported. They were supposed to get support from the people. They weren't going to be working. Notice what it says. Provide neither gold nor silver nor brass in your purses nor skip for your journey, neither take two coats or shoes or stays, for the workman is worthy of his hire. And whatever city or town you enter, inquire who, is, who in is worthy and stay there and abide there till you go hence. And when you come to the house, salute it. And if the house be worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return unto you. Now this is interesting. You Not only they were going to be supported, but they were supposed to go to who was worthy. 
go to the best place in town. Don't go, you know, you're not going to go to a shanty. You go to the best place in town and you stay there. Interesting thought. They were not supposed to go low class. Kind of, kind of changes the image we might have of the disciples. We're told, go to whom this worthy and stay there. So they could be supported. Interesting. This sounds like kind of like a missionary journey, doesn't it? Well, that's what it really is in a sense. These were prophets going out and they were going to be supported and so they could announce that the king is going to come. Now, this is entirely different for most of us, I think, than what you've traditionally heard. But this is what Scripture says. We take it literally. Is that not what it's saying here? Don't take money for your journey. Well, in other words, you should be supported. Well, why? Christ send them out. And what does, he, what does he do? He gives them the message. He says, as you look down through here, oh, let me see. I'm skipping on my notes, and you should always follow your notes. I have a bad habit of not doing that. Um... Where is that at? I'm, I'm sorry, I apologize here. I'm, I'm standing up here and I have notes and I don't have it in there where I should be going next. Um, that they were supposed to say when you, kingdom of the heavens is at hand. Uh, oh. Verse 7? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. You, you should have written my notes. You did a better job than I did. He says, now here's the message. When you go, say the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. Now, we'll, we'll spend some time, maybe next time, in showing you the difference between the kingdom of the heavens and the kingdom of God because so many people equate them. And I'm going to show you, I can show you in four verses. Four verses I can show you, they cannot be the same. It only takes four verses of scripture. Why, why that's not understood by more people? Because most scholars say, oh, they're just the same thing by two different names. God's in heaven, it's heaven, God, same, same thing. Heaven, kingdom, heaven, kingdom, God, oh, same. No, it's not. I can show you four verses. Well, so Jesus, now, skipping to the bottom, I mean, you can see, if you look at the notes, that the, the 12 were going to be t- were told in verses 14 and 15 that they were going to be rejected and be treated like Christ. And you'll notice that the section on opposition takes up nine verses, which is in this particular in this particular commission, nine verses is the biggest single piece of information, and it's about how they were going to be rejected. That's interesting, isn't it? They were warned they were going to be rejected. Now, that is why I said at the bottom of the page, his forerunners who were going out to say the kingdom is coming, they were going to get some pretty intense rejection. You can see what it says, verse 21. Brothers shall deliver up brother to death, the children, the father, and the father shall rise up against their parents and be put to death. And verse 22, you shall be hated of all for my name's sake. Whew. You shall be hated of all. That doesn't sound very good. Now, in light of that, would it not be so that you would have to have that strength of character that you see in Matthew 5, verses 1 through 16? You would have to have that strength of character. You would have to be meek. You'd have to be a peacemaker. All of those things about you would have to do that to put up with this kind of opposition. That's exactly what happens in the church today by, by contrast. Oh, we're not in the same circumstances, but you know today, there's a little verse in 2 Timothy 3.12. Does anybody know what 2 Timothy 3.12 says? You get 10 points this morning if you know it. All that, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Shall suffer, not might, not could, they will suffer persecution. If you desire to do it, 
It's going to happen. Now, Christ even told his servants, you're going to get it. Now, that is why, that is why I believe that you can say that the Sermon on the Mount, those first 16 verses, they had nothing to do with spiritual Israel. They really didn't have that much to do with the people of Israel. They were for the 12 so that they could conduct a ministry. They had to have the character. Here's what you've got to be like to do this. Now, if you understand that, you've just taken a big burden off your back because otherwise you have to go through here and you have to read part and skip things. You know what? what's the most interesting thing of all about the, when I've seen commentaries written on this? You know what happens? They don't always allegorize everything in here. Sometimes they just skip over parts of verses because they just don't know what to do with it. They just skip it. You know, skip to the loo, I guess. I don't know. They're playing games with the Bible. They must be. I refuse to do that. If it's in the book, it needs to be explained. It needs to be taken literally. And you know what? I'll have to confess something to you. I've said many a time, I don't know. I would rather say, I don't know, than make something up and find out I was wrong or then allegorize it. It's God's word. I have no business and neither do you. I have no right to take it and say, this is what it means. This is what I think it means. No, the Bible is the critic of me. I'm not the critic of it. I wish people that play games with the Bible and try to say we're spirits, I wish they would understand what Hebrews 4 says. The Bible is the critic of the thoughts and intents of my heart. It doesn't go the other way. I'm not the critic of what God does. So, this morning, I hope you see that when you look at the Sermon on the Mount, this is just a portion of what could be said. But this is pretty devastating. If you understand... If you get verses 1 and 2 and see that he's speaking to his disciples and teaching them, and he tells them, you're going to be prophets, and you connect that to the 10th chapter when they go out, then you've got the picture because he's telling them how to act. Verse 10, he's giving them the ministry. He's telling them what to do. And it has nothing to do with us. But we need to understand that because otherwise you wouldn't understand the Gospel of Matthew. You really wouldn't. Now, next, next time I speak... If you want to see it, we'll, we'll make sure we do it. I, I'll show you in four verses. And it's not that I'm so clever. It's just the fact I can read English, you know. I don't even need to. I can show you in four verses and I don't have to know a single word of Greek. I can show you in four verses that the, that the kingdom of the heavens and the kingdom of God cannot be the same thing. They can't. Isn't it funny? You can read it in English. Scott, I, took, I spent all that money to learn Hebrew and Greek and I don't even need it to teach some of these things. Thank God it's so simple because everybody can understand it. I hope today you saw this. Now, did we use any Greek or fancy words this morning, folks? Did you hear any Greek thrown at you? Didn't hear any, did you? Because you can see it in English. There's no excuse for anybody to misread the Bible. There is no excuse. It is a severe heresy if you see somebody making the Sermon on the Mount for us. It's a heresy. I wouldn't listen to anybody who said that. I'd turn them off immediately in my mind. It's a heresy. This is for the Twelve. I'm thankful God gave it to them. I'm thankful God gave them because they wouldn't have been able to do these things. God provided for them what they needed. But what they need, what they got, would not do you very much good in your spiritual life. Because if you have to go out and you have to pump up your spiritual character on your own, just remember Romans 7. The next time you think you can do it on your own, just remind yourself to read Romans 7 once in a while. Maybe once a month we should all read Romans 7. And be reminded, if I try to do it on my own, 
I'm going to find out I've got a sin nature. That's about the only thing. And I already know that. I don't need to be reminded. So if you want to find out if you have a sin nature, try and, try and please God on your own. Try and do the things that Matthew 5 talks about. But you're not going to be happy. You're not going to be spiritual. And you're not going to mature. Let's close in prayer, shall we? Father, today again, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for the fact that there are things in, in the book that are heavy and sometimes might seem negative. But the point of things being negative, as we do the today, are to point out that they're not for us and that they're a danger to us. This is a poison that can affect the church. It's a poison that can ruin spiritual growth. It's a poison that can take away the happiness and the blessedness and leave us all back to square one, acting like we did when we were unsaved, trying to do things on our own, trying to be Christians. We don't have to try and be Christians, Father. We are. What we need to do today is allow the Holy Spirit to do the work that we cannot do. And, Father, may we learn to leave for Israel what belongs to them and take for the church what belongs to us. We ask in our Savior's wonderful name. Amen.